Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Seed, the fruit, and the harvest. And in looking at this, I want us to examine some of the things that Christ said. And uh, particularly the point, the, the object of, of the study is to gain a deeper and fresher appreciation of what Christ accomplished by his work here on earth. This is the goal that I'm aiming for. Okay, so this is what we want to see. And, and in light of that, we're going to examine some end time events that can only come about as a result of Christ's work. We're going to be looking at some interesting prophecies. Uh, so it, it'll, be, it'll be some interesting thoughts there. But that's the point I want to focus on and some of the things that Christ said and their significance for us today. Uh, too often, we do not truly understand or appreciate what Christ actually accomplished when he was here on earth. And, uh, and so I want us to see that in a fresh light. One particular verse I want to focus on today is what Christ said here in John chapter 12 and verse uh, 23 and 24. And uh, Jesus said here, uh, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Who was Christ talking about here? He was talking about himself. He's referring to himself as this corn of wheat. That so long as it remains alive, it remains alone. The only way for it to produce a fruit and eventually a harvest is for that corn of wheat to die. In other words, the death of Christ was required in order to produce a harvest. That's very, very clear. So long as Christ was not dead or was alive, that harvest could not come about. He says he would abide alone. Isn't that right? Now I want us to keep that in the back of our minds, this particular thought. Because this is what the seed is, what we were talking about. It's the first aspect. That's the seed. And of course, the coming of the seed uh, was the focus of the entire Old Testament. All the prophecies, the whole burden of the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of the seed. Jesus said that to the Jews. You search the scriptures for, uh, you think they have, you have life in them, but they testify of me. And there are a number of prophecies. I just want to highlight just uh, quickly a few, just to keep that thought in mind. That through all the ages, this was the focus. And from the very first prophecy recorded, Genesis 3.15 was about this particular point. Jesus speaking to Adam and Eve here, he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the serpent as well. Between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He was prophesying of this seed that would come. This is about 4,000 years before Christ said those words that we just read, except a corn of wheat fall and die, it abides alone. And this has been the burden through the ages. Uh, of course, Christ uh, repeated that promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18. He said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Here it is again, the seed. And through the whole Old Testament, the, the expectation and the longing of God's people, especially because they had all these prophecies, was looking forward with great earnest longing to the time when this seed would come. We don't perhaps appreciate that because we're living on this side. We're living after it's all happened. And so I want us maybe to, uh, to think about it from their perspective. 
and how important that really was, this coming of the seed. This is really the whole uh, crux of the gospel. Paul uh, refers to that in Galatians 3.8, referring to that very same thing. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. This is the gospel. Of all the promises that God gave to Abraham, this promise of the coming of the seed is the gospel. In thee shall all the nations of the earth be in this seed that would come through Abraham. So it's very significant. It's very important. The whole Old Testament is about that. And this helps us appreciate the words that Jesus said, listen, this seed, except it fall and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will produce a fruit, actually much fruit. And of course, uh, you know that uh, Paul also says this seed is referring to Christ. He says it doesn't speak of seeds as of many, but of one, as of one, which is Christ. This seed, of course, is Christ. Now, the important aspect of the coming of the seed is that he would accomplish certain things that were absolutely necessary in order for salvation to take place. There are a number of scriptures that talk about that. Isaiah 53 is a popular one. I just want to focus on a few points here in verse 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Of course, this is talking about Christ. This is a prophecy about Christ. But notice carefully, this seed would actually be offered. It says it would make his soul an offering for sin. He would deal with this sin problem. And as a result of this, he shall see his seed. What's that referring to? The harvest that he would eventually produce, the fruit that would come about as a result of him dying and him producing seed. So Christ is the seed and he produces other seeds. And when he sees that, it says, he shall prolong his days. And in the end, it says, as a result of this, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's what the seed will accomplish. This is, this is what everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to. Because when Isaiah wrote this, there was no offering for sin in his time. You realize that? When it says here, Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. That's still in the future. So that's why they were looking forward with great anticipation to that. At the time when Christ will come and he will bear their iniquities. Another, uh, another place that mentions this, and this is a really beautiful prophecy, is uh, the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 9.24, you know the 70-week prophecy, but uh, there are some elements here that refer to the work that the seed would accomplish. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. These are very, very significant things. And when Daniel was writing this, we, we sometimes perhaps fail to realize it. When Daniel was writing this, None of these things had even occurred yet. There was no finishing of transgression. There was no end of sin. Reconciliation for iniquity was not even happened yet. Everlasting righteousness was not brought in yet. The vision and the prophecy were not sealed and the most holy was not anointed yet. See, all these people were living with this incredible 
expectation of the time when all these things would happen, the time when the seed would come. You know, every, every family in Israel hoped that the Messiah might be born in their household, especially if they're of the tribe of Judah, of course, you know, because they had to be of that tribe. There's this longing, this expectation for the coming of this seed and what it would accomplish. Because when the seed would come, then all these things will be done. You see, we're living at a time, brothers and sisters, when, when these things have already happened. And, and so we, we tend to assume, well, yeah, that's how, in a sense, it's always been. But these people were living at a time when this was still to happen. And uh, when we realize that, hopefully we'll, we'll better appreciate and, and, and uh, magnify what Christ has actually accomplished when he came and this uh, coming of the seed. So Daniel looked forward to it. Isaiah looked forward uh, for it. And every person in the Old Testament time looked forward to that time. And uh, of course, the Bible tells us in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. And uh, Peter, one day when he was preaching in Acts 3, he refers to this particular prophecy that was now fulfill. Notice what he says, verse 24 to 26. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, uh, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. See, Peter is basically telling these leaders that had rejected Christ, they said, you know, you killed him, but he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, this promise that was made to Abraham, this coming of the seed. And when it talks here about raising Jesus, this is not raising him from the dead. This is the incarnation. This is, uh, he raised a savior uh, at his birth. And that's when Christ came and uh, to bless and to turn away everyone from their iniquities and from their sins. That had come to pass, this magnificent promise of the seed that would come. Now I keep emphasizing this time and again because that seed, when it accomplished certain things, only as a result of that work could other things take place that were not possible before the coming of the seed. And this is a very significant point to keep in mind. The coming of the seed and, and him dying only after that event can there be produced other seed and eventually a harvest. That's what Christ said. And this is why the entire focus of the Old Testament is pointing forward to that time when this would become a reality. And now Peter says, this has happened. To you now God has made this promise, has fulfilled this promise. And Christ has been sent to bless you and to turn everyone away from their iniquities. Paul refers to exactly the same event. In other words, but also... Mentioning this seed, this glorious seed. In Galatians 3.19, he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Again, he's referring to the exact same promise that God gave to Abraham, this coming of the seed and what it would accomplish. And the context bears that very, uh, very well. And notice what Paul says comes about as a result of the coming of the seed. In uh, the same chapter, just a couple of, a few verses later, verse 22 down to 25, he says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up 
unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So when he talks here about the coming of faith, what's he referring to? The coming of Christ. That's what Christ would accomplish. When Christ would come, he would bring in this faith. That's why in the book of Hebrews, it refers to Christ as the author and finisher of what? Our faith. When did he author and finish our faith? On the cross, when he came. Through his life, he was offering, uh, authoring it. And at the cross was the end of the book. When he said, it is? It is finished. That's the author and finisher of our faith. So Paul is saying, this is what everybody was expecting, was looking forward to, the time when this faith would come. The time when this seed would come. Brothers and sisters, this coming of the seed, this event, is the most important event in the entire history of the universe. You realize that? It is more important than the second coming. There would be no second coming if this event didn't happen. You with me? We fail. We too often fail to realize that. And when we see, that's why I'm looking at some of these verses that we might be familiar with, but there is this incredible expectation and this, this sigh of relief. The seed has come. That's what Paul is saying. Now we have this faith. Now that we can, now as a result of Christ, we can be justified by faith. After faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. Something happened when this seed came that turned everything upside down. That's the point of scriptures. And if, if we really realize it, it should turn everything upside down in our experience as well. And that's the whole point of what, what we're trying to get to, okay? This coming of the seed. Now, some people misunderstand the, the coming of the seed that we just read earlier uh, in this verse when he says, till the seed should come. Some people actually misunderstand that and think it's, it's referring to the, to the second coming. But of course, the context uh, does not allow that at all because if it's till the second coming, then we're essentially saying that faith, the faith of Jesus has not yet come, has not yet happened. We're still waiting for it. And that, that cannot be, that, that, that's totally uh, misunderstanding the verse. It's actually, this is the time when uh, Isaiah was referring to where he says, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, that we might be justified by faith. He's talking about, uh, about that particular time. I want to read the statement that just confirms this from a spirit prophecy. This is a beautiful statement, but just confirms Paul's context very clearly. It says, when our first parents transgressed the holy law of God, the Lord promised that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. The serpent was to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he was to have no power to touch the head. Humanity was lost, and Christ appeared as the world's redeemer, the seed to whom the, promise, the promises were made. He died to redeem mankind. And that's exactly what Paul was saying, until the seed should come to whom the promises or the promise was made. So this coming, this first coming of Christ is the climax of the entire great controversy with Satan. Because, you know, it was at that period that the great controversy, that battle, was won and settled. Now, we're not finished yet. The controversy is not finished yet, but the outcome has been settled and decided. There is no questioning as to what's going to happen in the end. You with me? That only came about when the seed came and died and rose. 
That's why I'm saying this is the most important, significant event. We cannot, uh, I cannot emphasize that enough. And as a result of that, as uh, Isaiah said, he shall see of his seed. And this is what Paul talks about in Galatians 3.29. If ye be Christ, then ye are, are ye Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. Now we can be part of what the seed produces because he has died. You see, all too often we talk a lot about Christ and his death almost to the point where it becomes, you know, uh, just words that we use. We, we, we miss the impact of what it really, really means. You know what I'm talking about? It's so common. It's the thing that we all talk about. Sometimes it becomes too common. And so I just want us to, to refresh in our minds. That's what Jesus told his disciples as well. Remember, he said, because I live, you shall live also. That's why he's referring to this seed that would die. And only then would be able to produce fruit and eventually a harvest. And 1 John 3, 9 talks about the same thing. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What is the seed that is referred to here? That's Christ, isn't it? Right? The seed that remains in you, that enables you to overcome sin, is that seed that was promised. And the only way that can happen is because Christ came and died. Then he can produce more seed. If we believe, that's, that's you and me. And of course, another verse that says this very well, and, and this verse has a beautiful thought in it as well, where, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that verse we, we, we quote a lot in Colossians. Well, here's the previous verse to it. Verse 26 talks about it. It says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We quote that a lot, but we miss the first part, not realizing that Paul says, this fact of Christ in you in the hope of glory was actually a mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. But now has made, been made manifest. So two questions. Why was it hidden? And when was it made manifest? Why was it hidden? I know it's after lunch, so it's a very poor time to have a quiz from up the front after lunch. I realize that. But try with me, you know, let's work on this together. What's that? Wanted anyone wanted to obscure it? It was hidden. Now, it was hidden not, not because of... Uh, not necessarily the enemy was hiding it. It was hidden simply because it was in Christ because the seed had not yet come. It was manifest and revealed when the seed came and died. That's what Jesus said. Remember, if that corn of wheat does not die, it abides alone. Only if it dies can it produce much fruit. So Paul's saying here, listen, guys, we now have this thing fulfilled for us, which for ages ago was hidden and was encapsulated in prophecies and in promises. Now we have that realized and manifested. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what First John was talking about, that if his seed remains in you. You with me? This is very, very significant. It, it highlights what Christ actually accomplished. The coming of the seed is the great marker in time that marks a before and after. That's a great divide in history. 
You know, if you divide the history of the world, you know, divide it in two sections. Before the seed came and after the seed came. And that's actually how we date things today, which is very convenient. But some people who don't like that, they come up with, with all kinds of other stuff. So this aspect now brings us to where we can look at the seed that's produced as a result of the death of this seed. Because that's what Christ said. One of the uh, titles or uh, figures that's applied to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 is the first fruits. Let's read it. But now it says, is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. This is, of course, only as a result of Christ rising from the dead. And in the resurrection of Christ, Paul here refers to him by this uh, name or by this title, he refers to him as the first fruits. Now, what does first fruits mean? I was talking with someone, uh, with someone one time, and they were telling me, oh, the first fruits, and then there's second fruits, you know, that's why there's first fruits. And, and, uh, and I told them, no, no, that's, that's not the case. There's no such thing as second fruits in the Bible, okay? First fruits is simply that part of the harvest that ripens first, and the Bible refers to it as the, the best or the cream of the crop, okay? The best part of the harvest. And Christ here is said to be the first fruits of them that slept. The Bible picture always presents the first fruits and the harvest. That's, way, that's what makes a complete yield. First fruits and harvest, always. And this is what I want us to keep in mind. So when the Bible here talks about Christ being first fruits, then we can conclude that those that slept must be the, the harvest. And we're going to see that in a minute as well. I don't want us to just use one verse. But Christ is the first fruits, and of course, he is the first fruit of the harvest or of those that sleep. A couple of verses later, Paul says the same thing again. Verse 23 he says, But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. That's those who are sleeping who will rise when Christ comes a second time. So the same thing again. Christ is the first fruits, and uh, the harvest is at his coming. Uh, I want us to really keep that point in mind that the scripture all through Old Testament and the New repeatedly presents this fact that there's a first fruits and a harvest all through the types in the Old Testament and as we shall see in the New as well. So we don't want to get confused over that. Let's look at another verse just to confirm this in Mark chapter 4 and verse 29. It says, but when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. How many parts are there? Just two. The entire yield is made up of fruits or first fruits and, and harvest. And there's a very interesting point I want us to keep in mind here as well as we go along from this verse. What time do we know that the harvest is ripe and ready to be collected? When the first fruits are ripe. Isn't that what it says? When the fruit is brought forth, that means when the fruit is ripe, immediately. You put in the sickle because you know then the harvest is ripe. Very significant point. I want to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to pull it out in a little while. Okay? I know I'm taxing you a lot after lunch, but I think you can make it. Okay? Very significant point. When the first fruit is ripe, then the harvest is ripe. The inverse is also true. So long as the first fruits are not ripe, you cannot have a harvest. Okay? So there's only these two aspects and they're linked together. And these two aspects are only possible because the seed has come 
and died. That's what it's talking about when it says in Isaiah, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. Now, when we talk about the harvest, linking that with the second coming of Christ, I think a verse in Revelation uh, would come to mind because when Christ comes a second time, the Bible presents him as gathering a harvest. If you remember in Revelation 14, verse 14 to 16 says, I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is, is ripe. Okay, the harvest of the earth is ripe. That's a good harvest or a bad harvest? That's a good harvest. That's his people. And we know where this harvest is. Where does he gather this harvest from? From, from particularly the grave. Yes, from the earth. But remember, read earlier, Christ has become the first fruits of them that slept. Christ is the first fruits and then they that are Christ at his Coming. So now at his coming, we see the angel telling him, okay, now you can thrust in your sickle and reap. And the reason is the harvest is now ripe. So here's the question. What makes the harvest ripe? What brings the harvest to this point where the angel says, now it is ripe. Now and only now can you harvest it. It must be the First fruits, that's exactly right. The first fruits must be ripe. Now, is there any group in the last days that is referred to as the first fruits? Okay, 144,000. All right, good. That's, that's exactly right. In Revelation 14, 4. Now, we're talking about 144,000 people prick their ears up. You know, oh, yeah, that's an interesting topic now. <laughs> okay, Revelation 14, 4. These are they which are not defiled with women. For they are virgins, they are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. The 144,000 are referred to as first fruits. They occupy a position similar to Christ, who is called first fruits. So there is a, a link here, a parallel, it's kind of a type, anti type parallel. Christ is called the first fruits, the 144,000 are called the First fruits. And there is a harvest to be gathered. So what, how does all this link together? We said that only when the first fruits are ripe is the harvest ripe. Correct? So what brings this first fruits group to a ripe condition? Right? Because if we can figure that out, then we know that's what makes the harvest ripe. And then Christ comes and collects the harvest and we all go home. Okay, it's Christ dwelling in them, very true. We have that now, but there is something that happens that brings this group to the point where they are ripe. And when God sees that they are ripe, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is now ripe. Settling the truth, faith. Okay, these are all very good answers that are leading towards the ultimate answer. Let's read it in the Bible. Revelation 15, 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. 
This is referring to the same group because under 44,000 they have the harps and they sing a song and it says there later on they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. So this uh, conflict or this confrontation or this battle between this group and the beast and his image and his mark is what ultimately gives them this victory. Isn't that correct? And that victory that comes along is a victory in the time of the greatest trial and trouble that this earth has experienced. What is the time of greatest trial and trouble that this earth will experience? Sunday law, time of trouble. Okay, Daniel talks about it. The time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Remember that? That's the time when the world would experience what we refer to as the seven last plagues. So their, their conflict with the beast and his image and the mark of his name and the fact that it will be sealed will, will prepare them to go into this time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And that time of trouble such as never was will purify them and bring them to a point where they are ripe. You with me? That's where it talks about, when God talks about, you know, refining uh, his children in the furnace as gold and as silver. The furnace, the greatest furnace of trial that this world will experience is this time of trouble that was never seen before. This group of people, the 144,000, they go through this time, and when they go through this time, they come to a point of ripening. They are now ripe. In other words, they cannot get to that without that trouble. And that's the only reason that God actually allows his people to go through that is to bring them up to that point where they are now ripe. And when they are ripe, then the rest of the harvest can be gathered. Very important link here. Are you with me so far? Okay, I don't want to lose anyone. Romans eleven sixteen puts it this way. It says, for if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. The first fruits... The lump is, of course, the harvest. Paul is saying when the first fruit is holy, then the lump or the harvest is holy. There is a link. They're not independent. You see, this group of people, brothers and sisters, this 144,000, they have to get to a point where they can live in the sight of God without a mediator. That's pretty high stakes. Isn't that right? And they can only get to that if they are sealed. And it's that period of living in the sight of God without a mediator that tries, proves, and tests them and demonstrates that they are ripe. That's why the Bible says they are without guile. They are as faultless before God. Now, when the timing of, uh, when they are ripe, that's going to be indicated by a very great event. I'm not going to go into it in detail. We're going to touch on it a little later. But the point when they become ripe is when God the Father pronounces them as such by saying it is finished. You familiar with that? This is something that happens before Christ comes. When he says it is finished, that means his people have come to that point. That's when Christ prepares to come. And actually at that point is when he tells his people the day and the hour of Christ's coming. We're going to read it in a minute. But that declaration of the Father is the graduation ceremony, the ripening event of the 144,000. And then the harvest can be gathered. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. It talks, he says, you know, the whole creation groans and longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. 
When is that manifestation of the sons of God going to be revealed at its apex? It's when God the Father says it is finished when the 144,000 reach that point of ripening. That's the ultimate manifestation of the sons of God that all of creation is waiting for. Because when that happens, then Christ can come and then he can gather his harvest. If that doesn't happen, there is no harvest. Right? And all this is only possible because Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. So that's what we're looking at. They're all linked. And of course, that's only possible by Christ living in them, as someone says, as we read. So the 144,000 are the first fruits. The harvest, what is their harvest? We already saw it's them that sleep. The harvest is talked about in the very next part of the same chapter in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 7, we're introduced to two groups. First few verses deal with the 144,000. The last few verses deal with the great multitude. And Revelation chapter 7 is an answer to a question that is asked at the end of chapter 6, where Christ is coming, and the question is asked, who shall be able to stand? You familiar with that verse? So this is the answer to this question. Those who will be able to stand are 144,000 and this great multitude. Those are what the seed that died produces. The first fruits and the? Harvest. In other words, what we're talking about here when we talk about the great multitude is we are talking about the harvest. This is the harvest that comes about as a result of the 144,000 being ripe. First fruits and harvest. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the great multitude and the harvest. Uh, you know, and talking to people over the years, I've heard all kinds of theories. And uh, I, I want to share with you not my theory, but uh, what the evidence supports. Because it's, it's an interesting ask, because when we understand it, it helps us appreciate something about God's plan and how we fit in that particular plan. Uh, some people believe that the harvest of the 144,000 great multitude are going to be the, the converts of, uh, of the preaching of the 144,000. You're familiar with that? That's quite popular uh, today. Uh, the, the idea goes that the 144,000 are going to be like the evangelists who will go out and in the power of the latter rain, they're going to convert this great multitude, all these people. And that's what will happen. Now that seems to make sense. We're going to examine that in a minute as well. And uh, the idea, I guess, is that uh, these groups will rema remain till Christ comes or there's maybe variations on that. But it's important to understand at what point the harvest can be gathered. It can only be gathered when the first fruits is ripe, not before. Okay, we already established that. So this will help us uh, clear out whatever issues that there might be about that. Now, there's no doubt that uh, as a result of the work of the 144,000, there will be people who will be converted. But the great majority of this harvest, brothers and sisters, are already sleeping in the grave. And there will be many people who will be converted in the last days who will die, who will end up in the harvest. You see, only the 144,000 are sealed with the seal of the living God, correct? They're the first fruits. And we're going to see that as well in a minute. I don't, I don't want to go all over the place. 
Uh, now I want to put some scenarios to you. I want you to think about it. Is everyone who is going to be saved going to be sealed with the seal of the living God? Yes. Okay, we have yes and we have no. That's excellent. And we have a silence for the majority. <laughs> Let's see what he's going to say next. huh? <laughs> The 144,000 are the only ones who receive the seal of the living God. We don't see anything said about the great multitude receiving the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God is something that happens in the last days that is linked with a number of things that we're going to talk about in, in another meeting at this camp. So we're going to get to that. But uh, it's important to, to just keep that uh, distinction in mind. <clears throat> so in other words, there might be some converts in the last days who might not qualify to receive the seal of the living God. They would die and they would come up as part of the great multitude at the resurrection. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, very much yes. You see, we have to keep that in mind. There's all kinds of scenarios that can exist. The seal of the living God is not, the only, is not how we're saved. This is a qualification of the special group of people that are called the first fruits. If you don't qualify to receive the seal of the living God, are you going to be lost? Because the great multitude is not said to have the seal of the living. You understand what I mean? Because there's first fruits and there is harvest. And it's the result of what the first fruits go through and what they accomplish that actually justifies God in gathering all the harvest. Because if anyone else of that harvest was in the same shoes under the same circumstances, they would produce the same result. You with me? That's the connection. One part of the body. When the body is honored, when one member, Paul says, when one member of the body is honored, the whole body is honored. Same fruit, same fruit okay, the same fruit. Because think about like people like, uh, say, uh, Martin Luther or, or William Miller. These people, they died, right, in the faith. They died believing some errors. They died before they even perfected their character possibly, yes or no? They're going to be saved, right? On what basis? The first fruits. What they believed in Christ. In other words, if these people were put in the same circumstances as the 144,000, because of their faith in Christ, they would come up to the same result. And when one group, the 144,000, demonstrate that, then God is justified in gathering all the others, even though they didn't come up to that point because of circumstances or times and events prevented them from going to that experience. You with me? So that's, that's the link between the, the whole, all the parts uh, of the body. So that's uh, just some scenarios uh, to, to think about. For, like, for example, uh, William Miller. Does William Miller have the seal of the living God? No, because the seal of the living God has to do with this, the sealing message of the three angels, which has to do with the present truth of a number of things, including the Sabbath. Isn't that right? Okay, we have some references there. Thank you. Okay, so, so you just keep, keep that fact in mind, because sometimes we can get confused over these things needlessly. Now, I want to look at the harvest aspect a little closer here because the harvest timing is very significant. Like when people say the 144,000 go out and they win this great harvest of, of converts. That sounds nice, and we really would like to believe that. And there will be many people converted, but that's not what the scripture is talking about when it talks about the great multitude here. Let's look at a few verses. Okay, here it is Matthew 13 39. Jesus is talking about the parable of uh, the wheat and the tares. He says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the. Angels. He gives you timing and those that are involved. The harvest is when? End of the world. The reapers are not people, not the 144,000. They are angels. What event is this? Resurrection. Correct? 
That's when the angels will go and gather all the risen saints and gather them to meet the Lord in the air. You familiar with that? So that's significant. It tells us here very, very clearly. So in other words, if the first fruits uh, are only made ripe during the seven last plagues, then you cannot have a harvest before that event. Correct? If the event that makes the first fruits ripe is the seven last plagues, and then, then the Father says it is finished, then you can't put the harvest before. <laughs> that, was, that was five hits, huh? <laughs> okay, so, so the first fruits and the harvest, the type and the anti-type, they have to match. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept at his coming. The 144,000 is also the first fruits of the same harvest. Okay, make sense? You don't have to agree with me, I just want it to make sense first. Agreeing is, is your decision at the end. But I just want it to be clear. Now I want to look at a few aspects here because when we realize the harvest is only after that event, then the only place you can gather that harvest is the grave. Because there's not going to be any conversions happening during the time of trouble, during the seven last plagues, right? Whoever is sealed is sealed. Whoever is holy is holy, whoever is, is with the Lord, whoever has made their decision, then the time of trouble hits. Because there's no conversions, because there is no more mediator. So the, har the harvest has to be at the very end, which is from the grave. There's not going to be harvesting from people. That's the point. It's going to come quite a number of times. But let's look at, uh, at that here. Uh, <clears throat> so probation and the harvest, as we said. The 144,000 only ripened after probation's closed. So the harvest has to be after that. The harvest cannot be here. So this is the time where the latter rain is, where there's going to be preaching. There's going to be a lot of conversions. A lot of people are going to come in. Some will die. Some won't. The 144,000 will be finally sealed. And then probation closes. The great multitude is here, not here. Because then the harvest is not ready here before they're ripe. It just destroys the whole type that Christ is, uh, is presenting. Let's look at uh, how Spirit Prophecy puts this. Desire of Ages 834. This is the last chapter. Remember, after his ascension, Christ goes to heaven and he takes with him those risen saints. And he's entering into heaven. It says, Christ waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head, his pierced side, the marred feet. He lifts his hands, bearing the print of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. How clear is that? The great multitude... Uh, uh, <laughs> seeing all these blank looks. Okay. <laughs> Okay, remember the people uh, that rose with Christ? They went to heaven with him, right? It says here he presents them to the Father as, as a wave sheep and as a sample. They are a sample of the great multitude that will come from where? The grave. Okay, you with me now? That's the harvest. So they are a sample of the harvest. Let's look at another one. Well, let's illustrate that first, okay? So Christ, this is the raised saints that rose with him at the same time when he rose, that he took to heaven, and they represent, they are a sample of this. And they're called by the same name, they're also called first fruits or wave sheaf. And just like this first fruits 
are the first fruits of this, this harvest. Uh, here's another one, Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3. He is seated by the side of his father on his throne. The Savior presents the captives he has rescued from the bonds of death as the price of his, at the price of his own life. His hands place immortal crowns upon their brows, for they are the representatives and samples of those who shall be redeemed by the blood of Christ from all nations, tongues, and people, and come forth from the dead when he shall call the just from their graves at his second coming. That's the great multitude. Same description here, from every nation and tongue and people. Okay? Is it coming together? Okay, that's, that's good. Uh, let's look at, there's just a couple more. I just want to uh, show you that uh, only the, har the, the harvest does not come to life until Christ returns. They can only come from the grave. Let's read this one. Only by yielding up his life could he impart life to humanity. Only by falling into the ground to die could he become the seed of that vast harvest. The great multitude that out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people are redeemed to God. Now that's a really clear one as well. That's the verse, this is referring to the verse that we started with. Only by dying can he produce the harvest. And that harvest will be gathered from all these nations. At what time? At the very end. That's all the redeemed. That's the great multitude. Now, when this happens, before that, there's a few events that, that have to happen. Let's look at this particular statement in Testimonies, Volume 1. That's the one. Speaking about this time, this is what it says. Soon we heard the voice of God like many waters, which gave us the day and hour of Jesus' coming. This is the Father speaking. The, the living saints, 144,000 in number, knew and understood the voice. While the wicked thought it was thunder and an earthquake, when God spake the time, he poured out on us the Holy Ghost, and our faces began to light up and shine with the glory of God, as Moses did when he came down from Mount Sinai. You know what timing this is in the last days? This is at the very end of the plagues, particularly at the seventh plague point. You can read about it in Revelation 16. So at that point, how many saints are alive? Only, uh, there's no one else. Where are their converts? They're either sealed with them, and so part of that group, or they are where? In the grave, waiting to be harvested. They're in the great multitude, in other words. There's no one else alive there, only the wicked, and they don't know what's going on, they don't understand. Here's another one. The earth mightily shook as the voice of the Son of God called forth the sleeping saints. What event is this now? Second coming, resurrection. They responded to the call and came forth clothed with glorious immortality, crying, Victory, victory over death and the grave. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Then the living saints, who's that? And the risen ones, who's that? The great multitude, raised their voices in a long transporting shout of victory. Now the entire harvest is gathered. You see the sequence here? It's a beautiful picture, and it's actually not that hard to understand. It's very simple. But it's very significant to understand that this is only possible, the reason why it's only possible, when these are ripe, the 144,000. So we have a great responsibility and a privilege. It says, then there was a mighty earthquake. The graves were opened and the dead came up clothed with immortality. Let me give you a timing here for this. This is where we backtrack a minute. This is when God the Father speaks with his voice. In other words, this is the, the special... Uh, 
I'm sorry. No, this is the resurrection. Confuse everyone. Here. This is the resurrection. I'm sorry. This is the second coming. Then there was a mighty earthquake. The graves were opened, and the dead came up clothed with immortality. The 144,000 shouted "Hallelujah" as they recognized their friends who had been torn from them by death. And in the same moment, we were changed and caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's so second coming, right? So they recognize their friends. In other words, some people who might be converted by the 144,000 are going to be part of the great multitude. And they part ways and they meet again on the morning of the resurrection. Make sense? Okay. Now there's, a, there's another idea that uh, I've heard as well is uh, that the, the 144,000 and the great multitude are actually different names of the same group. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but uh, that's what some people believe, that uh, the 144,000 is only a symbolic name of the great multitude. In other words, it's just all the redeemed in one big group called 144,000 or great multitude. Now, there's a few reasons why that, that doesn't really work. First of all, it destroys the type of first fruits and harvest. There's always first fruits and harvest, two groups making up the total. We saw that, I think, repeatedly. Uh, one group, is numbered, the other group cannot be numbered. That's what it says in Revelation 7. You should do that, you know, I'm kind of quickly going over points, so it's good to read through it. Uh, one group is the first fruits, one group is the harvest. One group is from all the tribes of Israel, one group is from every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now, when we say Israel here, I think you understand what we're talking about, right? It's not, not the Jews, but God's People who come up to that standard, they are his house, they are Israel. They come up to a point where because they are ripe, then everyone else can be gathered. One group is sealed with the seal of the living God. And that's what enables them to become right. Uh, some of this group see their lost friends who come up in this group. We just read that, right? Remember in the resurrection? Those who are in this group recognize people in this group. So they're not all... Uh, all one and the same. And finally, uh, I think you remember this when Mrs. White had her first vision and she, she's taken to heaven and, and they come to the temple and Christ at the, at the door of the temple, he says something very interesting, right? He says, only the 144,000 can enter here, right? He doesn't say only everyone can enter here. It, it, there is a distinction here. First fruits and harvest. You see, the first fruits is what actually justifies God in gathering this harvest. You see what I'm saying? This justifies this. There's a connection here. Now, uh, I dealt with, I, don't, I think we did this last year. We dealt when we talked about the baptism for the dead. Okay, the Bible talks about the baptism for the dead. That's what we're talking about here. These are baptized for the dead. For more details, uh, there's a DVD at the back. Okay, so <laughs> we dealt with that last year. So let's, let's just keep going. Uh, Review on Hell, July 1851. As God spake the day and hour of Jesus' coming and delivered the everlasting covenant to his people, he spake one sentence and then paused while the words were rolling through the earth. The Israel of God stood with their eyes fixed upward, listening to the words as they came from the mouth of Jehovah and rolled through the earth like peals of loudest thunder. It was awfully solemn. At the end of every sentence, the saints shouted, Glory, Hallelujah. Their countenances were lighted up with the glory of God, and they shone with the glory as Moses' face did when he came down from Sinai. The wicked could not look upon them for the glory, and when the never-ending blessing was pronounced on those who had honored God in keeping 
his Sabbath holy. There was a mighty shout of victory over the beast and over his image. What group is that? His people who hear the everlasting covenant is 144,000. Yeah, and uh, the special resurrection takes place as well. So here is another very clear distinction. Only the 144,000 get to hear the covenant, the everlasting covenant delivered by God's voice. They hear the day and coming, the day and hour of Christ's coming. All the rest are sleeping. They don't get to hear that. Because only they went through the experience of victory over the beast and over his image. Okay, that's why. Okay, that's another distinction, like we said, but, uh, between these two groups. Now, one uh, thing here I should mention, some people get confused over this part. I don't know why, but delivering the everlasting covenant, they say, well, that's the time when the everlasting covenant is given to his, to his people. Uh, God the Father here uh, announces that which brought them to this point. Because some people say, you know, the everlasting covenant or the new covenant doesn't happen until this point. Because it says here, he delivers the everlasting covenant. That's when the new covenant starts. Well, that's just misreading the English. That's he delivers to them. In other words, this is their, their, like I said, the graduation announcement. They got there because of the everlasting covenant. And God repeats that with his audible voice so they can hear that from heaven. Now I want to put forward the, this aspect here. When we look at the seed and the fruit and the harvest, the coming about of the 144,000 was impossible before the cross. You realize that? You could never come or to bring about the 144,000 group before the cross. Why is that? Because only the seed can produce this fruit and then a harvest. So this puts great significance and emphasis on this event right here, the cross. You see what we're saying? That's why the coming of the seed is so significant. That's what everybody was looking forward to. Only after Christ came and died could there be a harvest to follow and not before. And that's why the book of Hebrews gives this beautiful verse. Hebrews 11 verse 39 and 40 says, And these all, after listing all the heroes of faith, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Some better thing for us. In other words, what's happening here on this side as a result of the coming of Christ is referred to by Paul as a better thing. Do we realize that? Do we really realize and appreciate what that means, brothers and sisters? That is the challenge. That's why Paul says this mystery was hidden from ages past and now is manifest, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're living in a time period that all these people for 4,000 years were looking forward to. Remember, Jesus was talking with his disciples and one time he told them, there are many prophets and kings and righteous men who wished to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear, but they didn't. You remember that verse? They were all looking forward to the time when this would be manifested. We're living at a time when this is done. It's a done deal for us. Too often we're living like we're still here. You know that? As a matter of fact, sometimes we even wish that we lived here. 
where there is a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and the water opening. So if I lived then, you know, I'd have all these evidences for my faith. It's, it's better than now. You know, people are like, I've had conversations with people who said that. Now that's nice, but what that reveals is we don't really understand or appreciate what we have on this side. Paul says this is better things, some better thing for us. So I want to challenge your faith. I want us to appreciate what made all the difference. It's the coming of Christ. It literally turned things upside down. And he, will, he has promised and he will produce this harvest. Now it's for you and me, as we're told, to strive to be among what? This group. Not this group. That's, that's okay, you can be saved. Everyone who's here is going to be saved. Everyone's going to be saved. Okay, that's, that's easy. You believe in Christ, you'll be saved. That's not rocket science. But over here, this group are going to go through an experience that will justify God throughout the eternal ages in the future. That's a high calling. And so that's why we're told, let us strive to be among them. I'm not by works, right? Okay. By, by faith. We understand the qualifications and the criteria of that group. A good fight of faith, that's right. I'll close with this quote. This is a beautiful quote. This basically sums it up all in one. Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3. If he, Christ, should draw back from the sacrifice of his life, he would abide alone, like the kernel of wheat that did not die. But if he should give up his life, he would, like the kernel of wheat that fell into the ground, rise again as the first fruits of the great harvest. And he, the life giver, would call the dead that were united with him by faith from the graves. And there would be a glorious harvest of ripe grain for the heavenly garner. Brothers and sisters, that harvest cannot happen without us. 144,000 is what brings that about. The missing link between the first fruit Christ, you know, it says, he shall see of the travail of his soul, he'll be satisfied. He's longing to gather his harvest. Longing. He can't gather it until it's right. That's for you and me. So I want to challenge you. I want to really, really challenge you to grasp a hold of what Christ has accomplished for us by faith. We, as we gain understanding, as we gain appreciation of that. And uh, we have this, this privilege and high calling that, that you know, is, is hard to really express. I hope maybe the, the Spirit can take my words and really drive them home in each and every heart. And uh, I want to uh, challenge you and say, how many want to say, Lord, please redirect my vision to see afresh the author and finisher of our faith. We want to gain a fresh perspective of Christ because when we see that, for what it really means, it's going to transform us. The reason, brothers and sisters, we're still here, Christ hasn't come yet, is we really have not seen Christ as we should. Isn't that right? What does Paul say? When we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. This point of us running the race is so we can get to the finish line, not to keep running forever. Isn't that right? The point of running a race is to get to the finish line. We get there by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The reason why we keep running and we're not getting there is we're not looking at him as we should. So I want to challenge you. If, if you want to say with me, Lord, take my eyes and anoint them so I can see Jesus as I should. If that's your desire, I want, to put you, I want you to put your hand up. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.